Hello, listeners. This is Emmett. Uh, welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am joined by Ashley Frowley, who is a sociology lecturer at the University of Swansea in the UK. And we are going to talk about happiness, misery, and politics in the time of COVID. I'm very excited to have her on. I've been following her work for a while. Ashley, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Or me, I guess. John's not here. Like, spiritually here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't need to use the royal we. Um, So we were talking before we really started in earnest about, you know, what um, sort of the politics of emotion in COVID. Mm -hmm. And I was taking a second look at your brief piece in unheard about how mental health experts were sort of exploiting this crisis. Cause I've noticed that too. I listened to various other podcasts, um, some guilty pleasure, like true crime podcasts when I do like mm-hmm. chores and things like that. And they all have these like mini ads for like, do you need an app to talk to a counselor? Do you need yeah. this? Like now more than ever, like you need a therapist. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that in reading your piece and in reading your book, I was like, is there a way to think about being a human being that isn't this uh, fragile, therapized entity anymore? I mean, it used to be in my mind that everybody was like, how do I get happier? Why aren't we happy? And after COVID, it now seems like... um how do I deal with being like permanently miserable or something like that? There's sort of this tonal shift that seems to be happening. I don't know if you've noticed that either where you are. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, uh, a lot there in what you're saying. So you asked, um, is there a way to think about human beings that isn't so therapized? And I think also at the moment people think, well, you know, obviously we are feeling pretty awful being locked inside of our houses and and that's absolutely true and you know as human beings you need social contact you need to talk to other people we are social beings but what I find interesting is um, the way that that's conceptualized as a kind of health problem as opposed to like a social problem a moral problem a political problem a spiritual problem whatever Um, it's like it's sort of taken for granted that this cutting off of people from social contact is a health issue. And I think it's important to remember that how you define a problem invites a particular solution. So if it's a health problem, then it invites a health solution. If it's a mental health problem, well, it requires mental health support. Um, If it's a social issue, if it's a deprivation of something that makes us human, then we have to find ways to get out of that, you know? And I, I feel like, so that's part of it that we, our vocabulary for making sense of social problems has been narrowed so much. And it's difficult to think about why you might care about a social issue, except because it affects your health. And so the only argument we can imagine having is the health problem of COVID versus the mental health problem of lockdown. And then that becomes the conversation that we have. But of course, there are many different ways that we could conceive of this situation. Uh, But the interesting question for me is why those ways of conceiving of the situation fall on deaf ears. So if you talk about freedom, you just sound like a crazy person. (laughs) And, you know, anybody, yeah, (laughs) yeah. 
Uh, and I think the, the reason why that is, is because our understanding of what it means to be human has fundamentally changed. And that subject, that kind of liberal enlightenment subject, rational, capable of reflecting on experience and choosing how to act, that rises above animals, isn't just a, a bundle of stimuli and responses and so on. That's really gone. It's quite degraded now. And we have a narrative of human action that is very weak, that's very animalistic. And that and that's actually been come to be seen as quite progressive to say, oh, we're all just a bunch of animals. Well, in that context, then it becomes very difficult to argue for freedom. Because if you if you don't have a subject that's capable of dealing responsibly with freedom, well, it's not a problem. I mean it's not a it's not a a solution it's not a goal it's not something to fight for it's it's a problem it's something that needs to be regulated and it, it's something to be fearful of so you can see this with the the uk government every time that they even suggest at all that people might be able to sort things out for themselves they might be able to look at their own lives and judge their own risks everyone loses their minds how could you dare say that you're outsourcing this problem to the population out as though like any idea that we could possibly govern ourselves is seen as outsourcing, right? We, we have to have this class of people who has their fingers in everything that will dictate how we should live our lives. And that's seen as, as a very progressive thing. And it's because our whole definition of what it means to be human has degraded and has changed. And so we have a, a narrative of subjectivity of, of human nature that is by definition quite diminished. And so in that situation, we can only have a conversation about this kind of victimhood versus this kind of victimhood, as opposed to, what kinds of freedoms we need when we desire and we would like to fight for it. That's just gone. Yeah. We joke about it on the podcast. We call it an oligarchy of sob stories <laughs> Yeah, where you sort of leverage an ostensible victimhood to like prophylactically destroy any criticism of your own actions, especially if you're already in power. So I think my yeah. favorite version of that is um, the current governor of New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo, basically killed a bunch of people in nursing homes with how he handled COVID and mm. is now getting, you know, dragged down in a sex scandal because they don't want to go after him for that, but they need to get rid of him. And I guess his team is trying to put together some like anti-Italian bigotry narrative <laughs> tied to it and <laughs> like flirting with the idea of it being like, well, maybe it's sort of like what happened to Emmett Till I was like, man, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> like, this has to be the dimin diminishing returns uh, moment for this. But that really seems true, what you're saying, that vulnerability seems like the not only funda a fundamental, but the main human quality. Mm -hmm. And that that becomes, that can't sit beside democracy mm -hmm. and sort of self-rule because if everyone is vulnerable in that way, it's like begging for a manager. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that's something that's really important too, because um, in the kind of research area that I work in, which is like global therapeutic cultures, where we all sort of talk about and research the different ways that these kinds of trends manifest around the world. Um, the most common way of understanding why this is happening is through is via neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And so people will say, you know, the therapeutic culture, therapy culture is a way of trying to create the ideal neoliberal self-governing subject who won't, who won't call on expensive state supports, who is, um, you know, will just go to work and get better quickly and so on. 
And there's a side of that that is partially true. I mean, a lot of these interventions, like mental health interventions, are sold to institutions and governments on the basis of neoliberalism. They will say, yeah, yeah, spend a whole bunch of money now on my big expensive intervention, but you're going to save yourself a ton of money down the road. But of course, that's never what happens. The, the reality is an upward spiral in demand. The more that you offer, the more that you claim this needs support, the more people claim they need support. Um, and that's the goal. That's if you look at any of these claims making campaigns, some of the very first things that they do is they argue people, they, they problematize self-reliance. They problematize self-reliance. They say the problem here is that people have all these problems, but they're not going to professionals. And so you change the narrative. You say, this is not something you can deal with on your own. In fact, to do so is irresponsible and dangerous. And you should come to me and you should seek out this particular intervention. And so you convince people that it is progressive and good and part of a good citizenship to go and seek help. And then, of course, there's an upward spiral in demand. And so although the selling point is neoliberal, the result is not. The result is not the perfect self-governing neoliberal subject. It is that that idea of the subject is actually undermined constantly by these narratives. Narratives. So I think it's actually worthwhile to think about why this is happening that moves beyond this kind of simple neoliberalism thesis. So you mentioned it, it invites all these managers. I think that's right. And I think there's something going on here that unfortunately I haven't really parsed out very well. And I'm, I'm working on something at the moment that I hope I can look into it a little bit more. But I think that there's there's it may have something to do with the expansion of the state and um, that the state is taking on like a, an enormous amount of consumption, even like supporting worker consumption at the moment, particularly like in the UK, a huge, a huge proportion of the population is living off of the state, basically. And there's talk of like UBI. And I'm not problematizing that. I'm not saying that's an issue. I'm just saying that it's interesting that the state is growing so much so that and uh, that neoliberalism thesis doesn't really work but also there's this growing stratum of society this kind of professional class whose purpose is administering to the problems of the population and you know we we churn out enormous numbers of psychology graduates every year uh, not all of whom are qualified to practice professionally and they wind up in all these various and sundry kind of like NGOs or they're working for the state or they're creating these kinds of interventions that they sell to institutions. Um, and so it's in their interest to continuously create problems that they then have these uh, solutions for. And I've actually noticed like young people, they've started to say things like, um, oh, why would you want to work for someone else's greed? As though like their critique of capitalism starts to extend to the workers, like they're complicit in capitalism because they mm -hmm. work for a factory. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to work for the state. I'm going to work for an institution. I'm going to work for, the, for an NGO. And of course, they're reliant on capitalism too, but in one from one step removed. It comes from state funds or a philanthropy or something like that. Um, but I, so it, I think there's something much more complicated going on here, but it's definitely like, yeah, you create a subject that is constantly in need of guidance, of expert guidance, of intervention. I mean, the word support is just absolutely everywhere. The solution is support, more support, more support, more support. It's just people making a space for themselves. Give me the money so mm -hmm. I can support these people. Anything to avoid giving people money. So I'm going on endlessly, but I'll just give one more example <laughs> with... Um, for instance, with Indigenous people, I remember asking my aunt, because I'm, I'm Ojibwe, and uh, my, my family has always been, like, really involved in, like, activism and things like that. And I asked my aunt, like, when I was younger, I said, well, what's, what's going on with 
like all these social issues and, you know, people are always criticizing us and saying, oh, you know, the state spends so much money on you and you just, you know, where's all this money go? And my answer is, well, it doesn't actually go to us. It goes to people who are trying to solve our problems. And this really hit home when we got a settlement because uh, my particular reserve, they um, uh, built, they, they took away some of our land that was agreed on in writing and they built a, a power plant there. And so they agreed to give us some of the profits. And initially they weren't going to give us the money. They were like, no, it should go to some kind of organization that will, you know, do something for the betterment of the community. So basically it would go to paying the salaries of somebody else to like solve our, our social problems as opposed to giving us the money so that we're not poor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that kind of example of what's happened. It's kind of social problems class that's grown up over the last maybe three decades. Right. The theory that we've been toying with because we've talked to several people. So we talked to Frank Ferretti, we talked to Kyung Min Sun over at the University of Delaware, whose book on Cold War neoliberalism, I think is an absolute must read. It's called mm. um, The Eclipse of the Demos. And it helped me see how long these trends are. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's come up for me over the course of COVID is that when we're talking about living in like a hegemonic presentism, it's hard to understand how long tales of trends entrench themselves over time. Mm -hmm. And I started to wonder, like people seem to say like in the seventies, you do a neoliberalism and then everything changes. Mm -hmm. And you have to think like, how true is that? And I've begun to think, and John and I have talked about this as it, as a platonic shift where it's uh, a shift into the rule of those who know an epistocracy, mm -hmm. yeah. right. Who have a meritocracy, that sorts them into their proper role yeah. so that they can administer the capital G good to those below them. And what mm -hmm. you have to do is get your therapy app and stay in your cube and eat your bugs and <laughs> hope that, you know, they put money into a foundation for a bunch of shiny, happy people that can, you know, run your neighborhood for you, you mm -hmm. know, and that seems to be, simpatico with some of what you're talking about here. Yeah, in my own work, I use Peter Berger's concept of the knowledge class um, mm -hmm. rather than the epistocracy, although I love that term, that's nice. <laughs> but yeah, there's this there's this knowledge class. And of course, uh, Berger, Peter Berger's writing about this, I think Berger and Berger, I'm sure it must be his spouse or something. But anyways, mm. they're writing about this in the, the 1980s. Um, I think so this is something that's been growing up for for quite some time but I, I you know I think I'm sure someone has done research on this but you you know you'd need to know exactly I think what's happening is that capitalism seems less and less able to support the working class and mm -hmm. so there's this shift over to the state but not everybody has a space within the state either um, and so people are basically squabbling am I going to be the have here am i going to be the one who gets the big bucks you know to the big grant in order to administer to this problem or am i going to be the problem am i going to be the one who um gets the the pittance the ubi pittance or am i going to be the one who gets the grants i mean this goes all the way back to you know marx talking about the petit bourgeoisie who's you know they were constantly being hurled down into the proletariat and the way that marx describes this the, this fear of 
teetering on the edge. Well, I'm better than you, but I'm constantly getting thrown down into you. What injustice. Uh, I think that really speaks to a lot of that hatred for the working class that you can see exists in the, the upper classes. They hate the working class because they know tomorrow they could be them and they hate it. I'm better than that. I got a degree. Mm -hmm. I have a master's. Mm -hmm. How, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to solve your problems and therefore I'm comfortable with you as a victim because that is now you're my object. But as soon as you want your subjectivity, I don't like that anymore because it also threatens my position in society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I walked out of college into the minimum wage world where I stayed for quite a long time, um, <laughs> the most important question anyone ever asked me, it changed my life, was what if you're just some fucking guy? Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had been <laughs> reared through these uh, institutions that had this like haughty response to being reduced yeah. to working a cash register at a hot yeah, topic yeah. in Tallahassee, Florida. You know, I was like, but yeah. I studied poetry. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How could this it, happen to it, me? It. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not like, I'm not, nobody wants to work at a cash register at hot topic, right? But in particular, yeah, the pay sucks. <laughs> yeah. And that's like part of the whole progress of society is that um, we automate that kind of thing and nobody has to do it anymore. But of course, this is alienated from us and it's not done for us so that we don't have to do that anymore. It's done so that we don't have a job. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, that's interesting because for me, I had a very similar kind of experience where, you know, I, I came from like a really difficult kind of background and I, my experience of getting an undergraduate degree was like, I'm better than those people, you know, yeah. Ugh, the people of the ghetto. Oh, I was never, I was never going to be one of them. And the whole, and it was like, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to be like your savior. And you can see like how I was being, I now understand how I, you know, I got a scholarship from like a Aboriginal organization and not mm -hmm. to downplay what they do. What they do is really good. Give people chances and that kind of thing. But the point was to like groom you, to be that person with that face that then can go into those communities and administer their policies, right? So it looks like a bottom-up kind of thing. So, oh, look, it's an Indigenous person who's coming in here and giving you these social supports, or it's an Indigenous social worker, right? And so I realized that that's what was happening. But so my whole story of, like, getting an education and feeling like I was better than where I came from was one of, like, just getting knocked down a couple notches mm -hmm. and then coming home. That everything that I knew and all of my inklings that I had about the injustice of my situation before I ever went to university um, were right, you know? And I, and I started to feel like there was a time when all I had, you know, an affinity only for other people with degrees because, mm -hmm. you know, we understand each other. We talk about these things. And then it was like, I can't, all of a sudden I couldn't stand people with degrees. And it was like, my husband's a pizza delivery driver and he's, <laughs> he's so brilliant because he won't take any crap. You know, when yeah. I'm trying to when I'm trying to theorize my way into saying something outrageous and making it sound really smart so you'll accept it, he won't buy it, not for a second. He never mm -hmm. let me get away with that. And I realized that it was that kind of basic desire that I always had when I was younger for a better life, for something better, materially better. I wanted a nice house with pictures on the wall and carpets on the floor. And that my education was like trying to knock that out of me. Like, oh, that's consumerism. You shouldn't want that stuff. Right. And then when I started to read Marxism and so on, I started to realize, which I didn't read when I was an undergraduate. I read when I was um, doing my PhD, um, deeply that is. I realized that actually there's this kind of empirical knowledge that comes from being so close to that struggle 
that mm-hmm. you know you don't get when you are a professional or when you are a bit removed from it and so now I, I feel like whenever people are criticizing the working class and people are saying oh people are so stupid they make these bad decisions and they're you know engaging in all these negative behaviors I kind of think well what in that context makes that behavior logical mm-hmm. because especially okay a couple of people might make a mistake right hundreds of thousands of people are doing something that makes sense you know, when there's a broader trend, even if it's a terrible thing, <laughs> but people are doing it because it, it suits them in some way, right? Um, it's not because everybody is simply mistaken and therefore behavior change is not really the answer. But there's, this, again, this whole like knowledge class whose whole goal is they understand social problems as people's failed behaviors, people's misguided pursuits of happiness or failure to do X, Y, Z, failure to save because, uh, you know, oh, if you save your money and good things will happen down the road, you know, we just need to change people's behavior so they won't be so destitute. I'm sorry, do you know what it's like to be poor? Right. Of course you don't save your money because bad shit happens. Excuse me. Bad stuff happens all the time. You can swear on this podcast. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and like, you hope for something better and it just doesn't happen and things just keep getting worse. And so it makes perfect sense that when you have something good in front of you, you eat it, like you, eat it, you enjoy yeah. it because, you know, saving doesn't bring good things in the future. It's a totally different world. No, you just want one good day. I mean, I remember <laughs> when I was washing dishes and I was getting paid sub-minimum wage, um, you know, just to check in like a hamburger at the end of the night, you know, no matter how long the shift was. <laughs> And I remember having um, shoes that I I only owned shoes with holes in them, but of course you have to disinfect the floor and they would have to disinfect the floor while I was still doing dishes. And so it would seep into my shoes and like burn the bottoms of my feet and I'd walk home. And I just remember thinking like, I would do anything to get out of this. Mm. You know, like I would do, I would do anything to get out of this, but then you're faced with the fact that being poor is expensive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and when you're in that level of deprivation for a long enough time, like you can't literally afford to think about the future, mm-hmm. you know, and you just want a good day when you, <laughs> when you yeah. get a nice windfall, you know. And this is what's troubling to me about sort of this knowledge class or this professional class, whatever we're calling it. And some of the things that I feel like an infiltrator at this point despite the fact that that I was like in some ways destined to be (laughs) amongst their ranks. And they're like, you know, can you believe that we had birthday parties where we'd all just sing in a room and then eat a cake someone breathed on? Maybe it's good if some of these (laughs) things go away. And I was like, what? That's like, that's just human life. Like, what are you talking about? Everyone celebrates birthdays or they're like, you know, we really should keep all this plexiglass up at the cashiers and stuff like that. And I was like, what is it about, this class that was so tailored for COVID. Like it seems so built in their image. How yeah, because this they happening. already had, they had this whole idea that we infect each other. I mean, it was a narrative before and now, it, sorry, narrative, a metaphor before and now it's literal. <laughs> it's just, you know, it was, you had all kinds of metaphors of toxicity and the, mm. you know, our, our relationships with each other that are just spontaneous, that aren't, you know, expert guided and following some, somebody's 10 rules in some book. These are all seen as quite pathological parenting that just is spontaneous and follows your 
gut and what you feel is right and your relationship with your child, that's bad. Uh, you need to buy my book, take parenting classes, do all of these things um, because you're going to infect your kid. You're going to like damage them in some way. So we already had this idea of our spontaneous relationships with each other being toxic and, and, and pathological. Now they're just literally toxic and pathological. So it's, it's just what's what they had seen as a metaphor before is now they feel our actual reality. And so they already had all of the machinery there. Um, it's now just become real. Like we already were supposed to put up barriers. We were already supposed to mediate and plan all of everything that we do before we do it in by, you know, consulting some rule book. Uh, and now it's just expanded. Mm -hmm. um, but I think also there's a general kind of misanthropy that underpins that. I think. Um, and I keep saying this, like my answer for everything for years has been misanthropy, like <laughs> diminished totally. human subject. Um, and then I started to kind of ask why, why has the subject diminished so much? You know, in the, the 19th century, for some reason, people just developed this radically different vision of the human subject. And I think the reason why they developed that was because it became possible that subject that they envisioned became possible in a way that it never had before. So if you look at the vision of human nature that existed during feudalism, um, people would say, well, it's in the nature of the slave to be a slave. It's in the nature mm -hmm. of the king to be a king. It's ordained by God. They thought that if you put a baby, like they even tried to do extraordinarily unethical experiments <laughs> where they thought if you take a baby away from its mother, it'll like start naturally speaking Hebrew or something. They thought that there was information contained already in the individual when it was born and that right. destined it to be a particular thing. Why did they think that? Well, it reflected the reality of their time. You were born a peasant and you died a peasant. You were born a king and you died a king, usually. Um, and that was just it. There wasn't any change. You know, wealth and privilege were um, pretty ossified in these or these very rigid, this very rigid social structure. Yeah. You want to talk about there is no alternative. That's feudal society. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And then these, you know, these forces, these productive forces that burst onto the scene, um, beginning in the about the 14th century, um, they started to open up these possibilities that had never been available before. So suddenly you could be born a peasant and all of a sudden you find yourself a worker. You are born a worker, you find yourself a capitalist in New York. Um, Oscar Wilde has a wonderful line where he says, they found themselves free. So free indeed, they were free to starve. I'm not saying this was like a wonderful thing, but mm -hmm. the fact that people did move around in the social structure challenged this idea that there's something within you that makes you who you are and what you are. And so all of a sudden you have a much more open understanding of human nature that emerges at that time. And what I'm worried about is that maybe the reason why we find it so hard to imagine an openness of human nature, why those possibilities are closing, why we're not thinking about human freedom as a good thing anymore. We don't believe it's possible. We believe that that's the ability to exercise freedom is uncharacteristic of the majority of the population is because maybe those possibilities are actually receding. Mm. Maybe, maybe our possibility for change is, has gone. That's what scares me. Yeah. That certainly keeps me up at night too. And I'm a big fan of the ancients. I teach the quote unquote great books online. So I spend a lot of time, you know, with the Greek thinkers who were all like aristocratic dissidents uh, <laughs> in Athens and uh, at least skeptical of democracy, if not outright hostile to it. And that's because, especially with Plato, 
and guys like Xenophon and Thucydides, who I deeply admire, though vehemently disagree with, I see so much of everyday discourse playing out in that way. And I do think that there's some sort of like return. I think there's a way we can take for granted the achievement of the enlightenment and of capitalism and forget about things like Lindy effects where something that's been around for a long time will continue to be around for a long time, especially compared to newer variants. Well, aristocratic thinkers thinking styles have been around for a lot longer than these like more Mm -hmm, open conceptions. mm -hmm. And maybe this is this sort of like lull or waning of that and a return of a sturdier thing. The only thing that gives me hope is that democracy is also quite old, you know? So I think Mm -hmm. there will always be a longing for human freedom. It just feels very far from us now. I was thinking about the Muslim thinker Avicenna the other day, who in his book, The Healing of the Metaphysics, uh, where he says, Aristotle is great if only he'd understood mind-body dualism. He has a great thought experiment where he says, imagine that you're falling through darkness, open space, you know, and you can't feel anything but you're aware that you're thinking, right? That's, you know, the difference between the soul and the body. And I thought, it was dawning on me while I was showering the other day. I was like, I've been under lockdown for so long. I feel like I'm falling through that darkness. I can't tell who's around. I understand that I am with my own thoughts, but when you're just with your own thoughts and you're not with other people, there's a thinness to your own inner life. And I don't want to therapize myself or anything like that, Mm. but only to point out that robustness often comes in common with others and a good faith experienced by those. I think that's why people feel profoundly lonely now is that this managed life is a life of loneliness. It is, it is. Um, But I think also what's happened and what's just been accelerated over the last year is this long-term removal of any kind of goal or purpose outside the self. Mm, And mm -hmm. increasingly we are encouraged to define our whole purpose in life by something inside of us, inside of our own body. And that is radically different than how most people live their lives throughout human history. Most people, this is Chantelle Dalsal makes this argument in a book called Icarus Fallen. And she says that the throughout most of human history, people viewed themselves as signs. You know, they were, um, they were um, a signifier of something beyond themselves. And so they were always half of something incomplete, but there was something beyond themselves that made them complete. And now that signifier and signified are inside the self. And so, for example, when my book looking at the happiness issue and how that played out in the media and how that we were encouraged to believe, believe that that was an issue and something we should all care about, you see that increasingly, at least according to these advocates and what I call claims makers, 
for this this new kind of paradigm and new way of doing things or, or new goals for policy. They couldn't imagine that there would be any goal to anything beyond individual happiness. Mm-hmm. And so you you had them saying you you saw claims makers like Richard Layard saying. Well, you know, we're all concerned about this problem and homelessness and, and childhood, this and that. But what we're all really concerned about, though we may be afraid of the simplicity of the term, is happiness. And, you know, people found that to be fairly agreeable, right? That at the end of the day, ev- what is every single issue, if not a concern for individual happiness? Well, that's and we take that for granted. Yeah, that must be right. But that's that's actually quite a new thing. So if you look at... Um, the American Declaration of Independence, where people, you will actually see these like happiness experts saying, you know, happiness has always been important. Look at the American Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness enshrined there. It's just a shame they didn't define it. It's a shame they didn't define it. Like, of course they didn't define it. It was a signifier of something beyond it, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, once you are freed from the chains of religion and, 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 servitude as you were in Europe, <laughs> um, you would be free to pursue your own happiness, whatever that might be, and mm-hmm. never ever find it because it's always something beyond the self. Um, and, and so it was a signifier of an openness that was never possible before, a kind of freedom that would be available in this new country that wasn't available any, elsewhere and hadn't been available in Europe. Um, it hadn't been up until that point. These were, of course, Enlightenment thinkers that would, had dreamed this up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but this is what's happened is that and that is, you're right, it's a very thin kind of feeling because it's, it makes any kind of suffering unbearable. Like you, you have a project beyond yourself, not because it makes you happy. You live for something beyond yourself because it makes your suffering worthwhile. It makes it meaningful. It makes it bearable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why people go on like hunger strikes in countries where they don't oppress freedom and so on. You know, they endure extraordinary suffering for something, a cause beyond themselves. Paradoxically, if the cause, the only thing worth living for is in your own damn head, suffering is unbearable because the whole goal is a constant state of well-being. And therefore, any kind of deviation from that is impossible to bear. Because that's the whole purpose of your life is to maintain some kind of feeling inside yourself. And it feels empty because, well, throughout human history, we'd always live for something beyond the self. And that's what made life meaningful. Yeah. It reminds me of the moments in Jesus' uh, Pervert's Guide to Ideology where he's talking about um, the sound of music and the climb every mountain song where the where you know she goes to the uh, mother superior and she's like, I'm in love with this man, but you know my vows. And he says, instead of telling her like, deal with it like sturdy yourself against that she's like climb every mountain <laughs> like just you know, <laughs> it, all the delights you want go and have them you only live once you know mm. and he says that this is a basic obscenity to some sort of like dedication i'm not making some covert defense of the uh sisterhoods of the catholic church but <laughs> that um <laughs> climb every mountain does really feel like especially as an american so much of what i was raised with and mm. how to understand what a meaningful life was. And it seems like <laughs> all of the things that might give you, I mean, there's the whole like bowling alone argument in the post-war era, um, which I mean, people have f- critiqued the numbers of that particular work of sociology, but I think it speaks to the fact that there is sort of a um, difficulty of life outside of the job being anything more than um, 
I don't know, uh, satiation through like um, numbing out to Netflix or whatever. And I mm-hmm. don't want to make like a consumerist critique or shame anybody. What I really want to point to is a context wherein we have trouble locating each other and the things that we value in common beyond ourselves. Yeah. And this is kind of the, the perverse, like, um, result of life in late capitalism, that all mm. these comforts and things that should make our lives easier become things that torture us. <laughs> so, like, you know, we, we, we are lucky that we have these, like, relatively okay homes. If you can imagine what it would be like to be locked inside your house during, like, the ninth century mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it would not be great or like in like any kind of industrial city in the 18th century it would have been pretty awful right and so we do have a certain amount of material comfort but it because it is a way of con- you know controlling us of what should free us to think and create and do what we want becomes a way to keep us captive um to you know lessen or dampen down our ability to react against something so when you say like this is unbearable this is terrible people will say oh come on now you've got your netflix you've got your amazon it's not so bad that kind of thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so this kind of like material basis of prosperity that like out of this context and another context could actually free human beings right like we we have all sorts of machines that automate all kinds of production and that free human beings from toil but their purpose is not to free human beings from toil you know we like um john stuart mill writes uh, like um karl marx made fun of john stuart mill in capital where mill he quotes mill like marveling oh it's so weird like we have all this all these machines and they don't seem to have freed up any time for us why don't we have any extra time (laughs) and he's like and marx is like because that's not their purpose their purpose Mm -hmm. isn't to free us up to think and create and do what we want their purpose is to allow us to work even harder (laughs) the thing that should should free us allows us to work even harder so we have these little comforts that allow us to be exploited ever more thoroughly to keep us working around the clock um to be constantly available to the capitalists at all times of day which is like the holy grail for a long time um uh, and so this is the kind of like you know there is no life outside the job anymore and you know we live at work now mm-hmm. and, and work is home work, work is home and home is work um and these these like material comforts that we have that in another context and that are worth fighting for, by the way, that's what you, when you said, like, don't, I don't want to shame consumerism. Yeah. Because like in another context, these things would be great. They mm-hmm. would allow us to express our, our, our creativity. Like you can go on TikTok and YouTube and teach people how to do things. And that's cool. And you can learn how to do all sorts of things, but they're, that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to pacify, you know, and mm-hmm. to make it okay that this has happened, that we can't leave our houses. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I was, I was reading your book and yesterday I was struck by this terrifying notion that I didn't actually have a working definition of freedom. Mm -hmm. I was like, God, (laughs) how did that happen? And then I was going through it and I was, I was sort of running through my head. I was like, okay, there seem to be reasons for that. I growing up during the Iraq war, you know, they hate us for our freedom, all sorts of ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, sayings like that. But it never dawned on me that I couldn't point to 
a real freedom to do anything or what that really meant in any way. And so mm-hmm. it defaulted to capture by these things, I guess, that are meant to liberate us or free us or whatever. And then it so they suddenly swallow the rest of your life. And I guess as we're coming to the hour uh, in a little bit here, I wanted to know how you've been thinking of freedom these days, especially when we can't leave our houses and Mm. things like that. Yeah. I mean, there's this tendency to want to pin down and dictate the meanings of all these different things. And that's Mm -hmm. what that book is about, right? This, you can't, they can't tolerate any kind of openness to happiness. Like rhetorically they would, right? Because they didn't want to, if you define something, then you pin it down and someone go, well, I don't think that's right. And then you, then then you've Mm -hmm. alienated them. Right. So there's like a rhetorical benefit to being as open about something as possible but actually behind closed doors if you looked at like policy documents and um you know less public debates scholarly debates though all mm-hmm. definitions were everywhere like they wanted to dictate they wanted to make a list this is what happiness is lest you should go off and do something that's not right here yeah. right so happiness and as they did this it starts getting more and more alienated from anything anyone would recognize yeah. so uh, you know happiness is a healthy body and a ha- healthy mind it's book that you talk about (laughs) nudge yeah 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 Yeah. oh yeah uh because because you can't trust people to make the correct choices for their own happiness so all of these things have to be dictated in advance even if we don't say it in our public discourses we just talk about happiness and then you're you're able it's what i call floating signifier so you just connect to it in any way that you want Mm -hmm. but actually behind closed doors its meaning is is actually foreclosed um, and so it's like, well, we have to go into the schools and make sure that kids get the right meaning of happiness because they're the adults, they're a lost cause. They, mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and that's also this this constant tendency to want to go into education as a way of solving problems is basically like, well, we can't convince the adults. They're <laughs> so we, the only real solution is like a, a kind of moral education. Um, but in terms of what I think freedom is, um, I will always kind of default to not doing that, to not have dictating mm-hmm. the content so I've always um, in terms of the dichotomy between you know freedom from and freedom to I will always default to the side of freedom from um, and I always think about this wonderful line in the German ideology um, by Marx and, and Engels um, where they were you know that famous line where he says um, uh, you can be free to philosophize i can't remember the exact quote philosophize oh, right. in the morning it's, it's yeah you know yeah. hunt in the evening uh, without ever having to be a philosopher or a fisherman mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. and so it's this idea that like for me real freedom is the freedom to do whatever the f you want and i don't care because i trust you as a human being to do what you'll do and people will say oh I don't know. And the reason why they don't like that is because they, we, again, we've lost this kind of trust in human beings that you Mm -hmm. have to kind of dictate in advance the contents of freedom, lest people use it incorrectly. And we'll never make any progress if that's how we think about people, because the only thing, the only like beings on this planet with the capacity to understand the world and therefore change it, to understand how it works and therefore wield or wield its weapons, um, are human beings, um, and we have to have a, a sense of trust in our ability as human beings to understand the world in a very deep way, 
and therefore to use that understanding to change it, as Mark says, um, to make history in the full light of reason. Uh, and we don't currently do that, um, but we, we've come very, very close, we're close to it. We're at a point in history where we're closer to it than ever. And yet the 20th century kind of showed us like, look what happens when you try to control history. Look, look mm. what happens when you try to change the world. And so I think we're kind of at this, we're kind of stuck at this point where we're, we have the ability as human beings to make an enormous change to like terraform other planets. Like we have that technology available, but the lessons of the 20th century have told us never to wield those weapons, um, mm -hmm. but we're the only ones who can. And so this is where we are. We're, we have this responsibility, we have this freedom, but we have a, a deep, deep fear of taking the reins, I think. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, obviously I'm a Marxist, so I'm alluding to without wanting to say, uh, the economy to understand how capitalism works to see where it's leading and not to acquiesce to its crises and its horrors and so on, but to fundamentally change the structuring of the economy because we understand it. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, that point is, is well taken. We're a Marxist friendly podcast here. So, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that can be proclaimed from the rooftops if you'd oh, like. It's always in my back pocket, you know, and I yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, uh, uh, John and I both, and in, in, in me personally, um, very indebted to Marxist thinking. And but I mean, you could think about that. Obviously, that's what I mean. I mean, I, d I mean, like, the only way that we can understand and have a, a legitimate kind of politics is by using our knowledge of how things work in order to figure out a solution and not hold back, you know, oh, well, capitalism is kind of the limit of our desires. This is, there is no alternative. Well, we're kind of realizing at the moment there's got to be some kind of alternative because capitalism is pretty crap at figuring things out. And also I worry about worse and worse crises for which we uh, may not have solutions. But I mean, you could also think about it figuratively in the sense of being able to trust people to exercise freedoms is tainted with because of the 20th century that's mm -hmm. part of what's led to this kind of misanthropy not just the fact that perhaps our agency is actually diminishing um and so the question is i think we have to get over that and try to avoid the injunction to give freedom content to dictate how people should live um, and that a key aspect. And I think that's just like how people want to live too. nobody want, you know, give me my house, give me my car, give me my food. Let me give me my money. Let me decide. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that's been really been missing in politics is that kind of openness uh, that once you have that kind of material basis, I'm going to try and work to secure that. And then you do you, <laughs> you do what yeah. you want. Totally. I was, I think, uh, yeah. I was joking with an online friend the other day about he was, he was telling me that whenever he would teach, Athenian democracy, that it was always often the most uh, left radical students that were horrified by the idea of sortition, where you would just pick random people to be part of the assembly. <laughs> 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 They'd be like, but how do they know? Like, what's the, <laughs> and it's like, well, I mean, that's the, that's the hedge you have against mm -hmm. the people who can more easily wield the power of these institutions or things like that, is that you have to one of your main weapons on being ruled is a kind of faith that every cook can govern. I was just about to say that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that that is the enduring, if, if there is any content I have for freedom, I guess it might be just that phrase mm -hmm. that it is possible for people to get together and manage their own affairs and decide what that is going to look like. Uh, in common with one another 
Mm-hmm. And what I've seen is, as you said, misanthropic suspicion against that, but there are still signs of life. And I am very far from giving up hope for this project of that truer, I would say, more radical freedom that people like Marx offered us. I think to say, to fully integrate, there is no alternative into your thinking is to say, I'm convinced that human beings are meant to be ruled mostly by their betters. Mm-hmm. And i that's unacceptable to me. <laughs> it's, also, it's also impossible because mm-hmm. um, history is always changing, right? It's not like we can just have this forever and ever. I think that's why a lot of people misunderstand me. I think online they think I'm a right winger because I don't feel like I need to tell give you a laundry list of all the reasons why capitalism is bad in order to change your mind and get you to fight against it. I can talk about the wonders of capitalism till the cows come home because I know it can't last. <laughs> yeah. Um, that it's it, that it's internal forces lead it to destruction, and it's avoiding that destruction and saving all the wonderful things that it does create and all the possibilities of freedom that it makes available. That's what gets me going. Not mm-hmm. I don't need to sit here and tell you that it's evil because it's not. It's not. It's not a moral thing. It's, it's the structure of our economy. It doesn't matter how good you are if you're a good person or a bad person. Um, but about about like freedom and you said you know there's reasons to be you know optimistic you know C. Wright Mills in his famous sociological imagination uh, which nobody ever reads past the first chapter at the end the end of that book he talks about how the whole goal of the social sciences is to further freedom and reason and he takes that for granted he just Mm -hmm. thinks that that's what we're doing here and I think that reflects some of our common sense as well Now that's gone now. We now take for granted that it's all for like well-being and safety. But when we actually fight in our lives, you know, we strike as workers and we fight for a better life. Often that is what we want. We want the ability to judge our own lives and, and have the resources in order to exercise our own freedom. And we do that even without intellectualizing it or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, when my husband wants more money, he's not like, because he's a greedy consumer. It's because he wants the freedom to decide how he's going to live his life. Yes. Um, and how our family will live our lives. And we recognize, because we're still poor, <laughs> we recognize <laughs> how limited our freedom is because of our lack of material resources. And when we fight, we fight for a little bit more of that freedom and a little bit more to exercise our own reason and how we will live. And I think that's that's a reason to be optimistic because people do that every day. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just take a look at the massive strike in India that happened not too long ago. You know, mm-hmm. um, Beautiful to see. Um, so I think we'll leave it on a rare optimistic note on the Exhaust book, the <laughs> podcast. And thank you so much for joining us, Ashley. I really do oh, appreciate you. you taking the time. This was a blast. And uh, hopefully we can have you on again. Yeah, definitely. It's really great. Yeah. Okay, listeners, stay safe out there. And we'll see you next time.